You are listening to the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, before we get started on today's topic, which is myocardial infarction, I want to kind of update everybody on a, a project we've been working on for the past couple of years, and that is a pharmacology textbook uh, dedicated mostly to pre-hospital care, though it's not exclusive to the pre-hospital hospital providers. When we think about pre-hospital providers, we typically in the United States think of paramedics. Um, but uh, throughout most of the world, um, the pre-hospital providers are typically in the form of uh, physicians and nurses. And this textbook uh, is really uh, designed uh, for those who provide pre-hospital care. We've tried to uh, make the textbook uh, different than other pharmacology textbooks in that it is kind of a case or problem-based uh, approach to pharmacology. And we've also developed a, another podcast to go uh, around it to describe topics of uh, pre-hospital pharmacology, pharmacology in general, uh, and it, it is a companion to the textbook. The textbook is called Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. Um, myself, Jeff Guy, I'm the uh, editor, and it is published by Elsevier, and it should be being released here in the next week. Uh, certainly check your websites for that. And the website, which we're doing a companion podcast, which will be available on iTunes soon, but can be getting, could be uh, um, obtained through the uh, website. The website is www www.pharmacologyforthepre-hospital-professional.com uh, or alternatively www.prehospitaldrugs.com. Today's topic that I want to discuss is the topic of myocardial infarction. Now it is clear that I am not a cardiologist. I am a surgical intensivist and surgeon by training. Uh, but I think those and those of you who are listening are certainly majority of you are not cardiologists. But those of us who aren't cardiologists, I think that the impact uh, for us not knowing some of the basics of how to uh, diagnose and treat a myocardial infarction, that's where the rubber really meets the road. If, if you're fortunate enough to present immediately to a cardiologist, which very few people are actually able to do, uh, certainly um, you would have to worry about some of the changes and uh, how we approach myocardial infarction. But those of us who provide uh, critical care or general emergency care or you're working in an office or a nurse, um, what are some of the signs and symptoms and, and how have we changed uh, what we call a myocardial infarction, how we approach it, uh, is certainly very important and uh, very valuable information. Now, it's important to realize that the heart is an aerobic organism. That means it requires oxygen and has a very limited capacity for anaerobic or uh, metabolism without the benefit of oxygen. Uh, 70 to 80 percent of the oxygen that actually is delivered to the heart is actually extracted from the blood. Uh, and so the uh, oxygen, excuse me, the heart is a very avid consumer of oxygen and, and uses about as much oxygen as we could potentially deliver to it in a very short period of time. Now, in situations where you have um, a lack of appropriate blood flow or oxygen delivery to the heart, we get a condition called myocardial ischemia. And when we develop myocardial ischemia, it is almost always and rapidly associated with a dysfunction of the contraction or the pumping motion of the heart. Um, and this can certainly result in a full-blown um, necrosis or death of the heart uh, leading to myocardial infarction. But there are some reversible uh, dysfunctions of the myocardium, and these come into really two main categories, which are known as uh, cardiac stunning and cardiac hibernation. Now, stunned myocardium is muscle that's been reperfused after ischemia, but even after it's been reperfused, that heart muscle still exhibits some contractile dysfunction, uh, despite the fact that we've been able to restore blood flow to it. Now, myocardial hibernation, uh, this can be seen as an adaptive response 
uh, in which segments of the severely reduced coronary blood flow um, reduce their contractile function to restore equilibrium between flow of blood and function. And therefore, this decreases the potential for ischemia or necrosis. So what we have in myocardial hibernation is that the heart is basically trying to protect itself from ongoing um, uh, decreased blood flow or oxygen delivery. So the heart basically basically shuts down a segment of uh, the uh, at-risk of myocardium, and that way um, basically offsets the uh, demand for oxygen um, by that poorly perfused uh, myocardium. Uh, what both of these features have in common, that both stunned and hibernating, my, uh, hibernating myocardium do uh, reserve some of the contractile function and both improve with time or after revascularization. Myocardial infarction is basically an inclusion of a uh, blood vessel of the heart, uh, and this is typically formed by a thrombus uh, that occurs in the small blood vessels of the heart, and the blood vessels of the, smart, of the heart are small. If you've ever had a chance to view these uh, directly in, in, in surgery, and what happens is you have a plaque, an atherosclerotic plaque, and it typically ruptures and it develops a small blood clot that we call a thrombus. And this thrombus basically occludes the blood vessel and doesn't allow blood flow to go down the uh, um, now occluded blood vessel. And this deprives the um, heart muscle on the other side of that thrombus uh, necessary uh, oxygen delivery from the uh, blood flow. We used to call these different types of myocardial infarctions either transmural, which means not the entire wall of the heart, or non-transmural. That, that nomenclature has been uh, abandoned uh, because it's really kind of difficult to recognize it sometimes on the EKG, and um, recognizing an EKG has neither been sensitive nor specific. So we have now changed uh, the nomenclature here, the names of what we call a heart attack or myocardial infarction, to acute coronary syndromes. And these have been classified... Uh, traditionally into Q-wave MIs and non-Q-wave MIs, as well as unstable angina. Well, I've been this uh, method of calling a heart attack or an MI has shifted. I'm trying to be uh, facetious by saying a heart attack as we keep changing the name of it. And so now we have what we call myocardial ischemia that's associated with ST segment elevation, or STEMI, which we spell S-T-E-M-I for ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, and those without ST-segment elevation, which we'll call non-STEMI. Now, in this last group of non-STEMI, you can have patients who uh, will have symptoms but uh, no enzyme or chemical evidence of myocardial damage, uh, and those could be patients who have unstable angina. So we have uh, STEMI, we have uh, non-STEMIs, and within the non-STEMIs, we have unstable angina in those cases where there's no enzymatic or chemical uh, evidence of uh, a myocardial infarction. We mentioned about the blood vessels of the heart, and it's important to go over some of the basic anatomy. The, the, the principal blood vessel that we hear uh, spoken the most when we talk about um, conditions of myocardial ischemia is the left anterior descending, the, the, and this is typically referred to as the LED. The LED supplies the anterior left ventricle, the anterior septum, and usually the left ventricular uh, uh, apex. The uh, LED has septal and diagonal branches. Now, an anterior infarction is seen on an EKG when one's looking at V leads 
uh, 1 to 5. The right coronary artery supplies the inferior left ventricular wall. So this is what you're seeing. This is the typically the inferior septum, most of the right ventricle, and the sinus node. Now, what's important about that is that well, that anatomical description that we just talked about, if somebody has a right coronary uh, artery occlusion, that's going to set somebody up for either an inferior wall MI, and then we talked about the uh, um, uh, sinus node. If somebody's having problems with um, uh, bradycardia, you may see that typically with a um, occlusion of the right coronary artery. Now, the right coronary artery is dominant. In other words, it gives rise to the posterior descending artery and so supplies the left ventricular myocardium in the inferior septal region about 80% of the patients. How do we go about and diagnose somebody who's having acute coronary ischemia or an acute infarction? Well, the diagnosis of an acute MI is made on the basis of the patient's presentation. What does their EKG look like? Is there changes in the biochemistry, such as we talk about the cardiac isoenzymes that indicate myocardial damage? So it's really the constellation of what's the patient telling me, what's the EKG looking, and what are the enzymes that are coming back? Now, there's a lot of things that can, can mimic myocardial ischemia, and the differential diagnosis is, is plentiful. It includes some pretty bad and scary things and some things that aren't so bad but pretty common. Things like a dissecting aortic aneurysm, pericarditis, pleuritis, pulmonary processes such as a pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, pneumothorax, a GI process such as esophageal or peptic ulcer disease, cholecystitis is a great mimicker muscle skeletal pain, as well as chondritis. I can't tell you how many times um, as a surgical resident um, getting a consult um, from a, a patient who was initially admitted uh, to the CCU for what was thought, thought to be cardiac-related chest pain, and in the workup demonstrates that the patient's heart is fine, but they've got perhaps um, um, stones in their gallbladder and getting biliary colic. Um, there's a... Uh, a textbook uh, that virtually everybody who's ever done a surgical residency or a lot of people in medical school have read is called Cope's Diagnosis of the Acute Abdomen. And Cope talks in that textbook, and this is a guy, this is before we had ultrasounds and CAT scans and echocardiograms, where really your ability to make a physical diagnosis is what sets you head and shoulders above, say, your, your colleagues as being an astute diagnostician and, and physician. Well, Cope, who wrote the, the textbook on acute abdominal exams that virtually Every medical student, I think, has read for since the book was written in, in a variety of countries. Cope talked about the time where he had biliary colic, and then when he talks about it, his presentation was he thought that he was having myocardial infarction. So here you have this world-famous diagnostician presenting with biliary colic and was convinced that he was having myocardial ischemia. So it can be uh, a difficult diagnosis to make. Now, clearly, this is a podcast, so I can't sit here and show you EKGs. Um, but the, the classic uh, um, findings that we see on EKG uh, for acute infarction is ST segment elevation. And then after the ST segment elevation, then we see it's followed by T wave inversion and ultimately the development of Q waves. So let's talk uh, through that process, that three-stage process of the EKG changes we see again. We see initially ST segment elevation followed by T wave inversion and then the eventual development of Q waves. The other thing you need to be very mindful of is the development of a new left bundle branch block 
with a compatible clinical presentation. This should be treated as acute myocardial infarction and treated accordingly. So if a patient who had a normal EKG preoperatively, perhaps a little bit of hypotension post-op, perhaps some chest pain, you get an EKG and see a new left bundle branch block, you need to consider that, look at that EKG in a similar fashion as you might somebody who's got a diffuse ST segment elevation. Now the criteria for diagnosing acute uh, infarction in the setting of left bundle branch block um, exists and is fairly specific but not especially sensitive. A posterior MI, which usually accompanies an inferior infarction, can be subtle. Now hallmarks of a posterior MI include prominent RY waves, tall upright T waves, and depressed ST segments in V1s to V5. Aside from the EKG changes that we're pretty um, used to seeing uh, with an acute myocardial infarction, we're all aware of some of the laboratory tests, uh, typically the uh, cardiac isoenzymes. Um, and cardiac isoenzymes that we look at typically are uh, CPK or creatinine phosphokinase and the myocardial band. And these typically appear in the uh, um, um, plasma about 4 to 8 hours after the onset of the infarction, peaks at about 12 to 24 hours, and then return to baseline at about 2 to 4 days. Now, to be diagnostic for a myocardial infarction, the total CPK value must exceed the upper limit of normal. So you can't have a CPK that is normal and think that the patient is having a myocardial infarction. And the fraction of the MB fraction, isoenzyme, must exceed a certain value. And this typically depends on the CPK and MB assay, and it's usually above 5%. Now, what if somebody has an M a normal CPK, but an MB fraction of, say, 10% have they had an MI. Well, that's why you have to have an elevation of the total CPK because if somebody has low or normal levels of CPK, any elevation of the MB fraction is going to result in a significant increase in percentage. And this is what physiologists like to refer to as a signal-to-noise ratio. Um, and therefore, you need to have both the elevation of the MB fraction as well as an elevation of the total CPK. Now, the CPKs are not as fashionable as they have been in years past, and they have been uh, replaced uh, in large part uh, by uh, the cardiac troponins. Well, what is troponin? You'll remember from uh, high school uh, biology or undergraduate biology is that the troponin is an element of a, it's a contractile protein of muscle. And in this particular case, it's much more specific uh, for the detection of uh, cardiac damage. Now, troponins are also more sensitive than CPK for the detection of myocardial injury and troponin elevation in patients without ST segment elevation uh, identify a subpopulation at an increased risk for complications. Now, troponins may not be elevated until about six hours after an acute event. So you've got a window there where uh, uh, a patient uh, is having an acute event and the troponin level will not be elevated. So critical therapeutic intervention should not be delayed depending on uh, the results of a troponin assay. Does the patient need to be reperfused? Do they need to go to the cath lab? Uh, well, they have a normal troponin level. It's irrelevant. It's not going to really start to see increases for how many hours after the uh, potential event? Six hours after the potential event. Now, once elevated, troponin levels can remain high for days to weeks, which limit their uh, utility to detect a late reinfarction. Now, there's also other scenarios where we can see troponin leaks, we see this a lot in the burn unit. Uh, patients who've had a, a significant burn injury will have a troponin leak in the absence of any um, uh, uh, physiological uh, signs of a myocardial ischemia. Also, patients who've had subarachnoid hemorrhage, and there's reports so forth. Uh, also, uh, patients who are having sepsis uh, can have troponin leaks. So, uh, again, 
all of these things that we talk about, the patient's symptoms, the EKG, uh, CPKs, troponins, they all create an aggregate picture. Uh, those of you who have listened to my podcast before or heard me lecture on rounds, I talk about the global positioning system that when we're camping, that uh, if I go camping and I have a GPS, it'll say accurate to 30 feet, and it'll say tracking two satellites. And as that little handheld computer starts to track more and more satellites, my accuracy gets better. You know, I got, okay, now I have five satellites, and my accuracy is down to 10 feet. Now I have seven satellites, my accuracy is down to three feet. When you're evaluating a patient with a particular problem or trying to make a diagnosis, I often think of those those little GPS computers, is that as we accumulate more and more pieces of information, our accuracy should improve. Our ability to make a good decision should improve. So don't just take a singular piece of information and say, okay, this is my diagnosis based on this one single piece of information because there are going to be situations that degrade the accuracy of that um, uh, piece of data. The next thing I want to talk about is um, the use of thrombolytics for the treatment of acute myocardial infarction. Thinking about what a myocardial infarction is, we said basically what? You have a thrombus. It starts out with a, a plaque, uh, an atherosclerotic plaque. That plaque typically ruptures. When it ruptures, it develops a thrombus or a blood clot in the blood vessel. That includes forward blood flow and depriving the heart distal to that uh, um, thrombus of necessary blood flow and oxygen. So it seems pretty straightforward how we get a myocardial infarction. Well, how do we fix a myocardial infarction? It would be, well, let's get rid of that clot. Let's reestablish blood flow. Dissolve the clot, get blood flowing back around that uh, area, reestablish oxygen delivery. Seems pretty straightforward. So the idea that early reperfusion for an occluded coronary artery is indicated for all eligible patients. Now, thrombolytic therapy has been proven to decrease mortality in patients with ST segment elevation. Let's say that again, that thrombolytic therapy has been proven to decrease mortality in patients with ST segment elevation. Patients treated early derive most of the benefit. What are our indications um, uh, for the use of thrombolytic patient? Well, the patient has to have symptoms consistent with a myocardial infarction. Uh, EKG showing about a one millimeter ST segment elevation and at least two contiguous leads or a new left bundle branch block. There it is again. So ST segment elevation identified by one millimeter and two leads that are next to each other or a development of a new left bundle branch block. To be uh, be considered for the use of thrombolytics, we have to have presentation with 12 hours of symptom onset. Now, that seems like an awful long period of time, and certainly we would like to get that down sooner if we can. In the absence of contraindications, keep in mind we're giving drugs that dissolve blood clots. So what are some of those contraindications? Well, the absolute contraindications, meaning the patient doesn't get it, no way, no how, is anybody who has active internal bleeding. That seems to make sense. Anybody who's got an intracranial neoplasm, aneurysm, or AV malformation. Anything that's going to cause blood in their head is a contraindication. Uh, anybody who's had a stroke or neurosurgery within the past six weeks. Six weeks. Uh, typically what you'll see in, in, in different types of exam questions is somebody will, will change this to say four weeks or six months. And clearly if somebody had a stroke or a neurosurgical procedure six months ago, that's not an absolute contraindication. The number is six weeks. Trauma or major surgery within the past two weeks uh, would be a, a, a potential source of serious re-bleeding. 
anybody who's got an aortic dissection. Those are our absolute contraindications for the use of thrombolytics. Now, the relative contraindication is anybody who's had prolonged or traumatic CPR. So that's kind of a judgment call. Prolonged, they actually list a, a CPR greater than 10 minutes. Severe uncontrolled hypertension. And what are the numbers associated with that? Well, a systolic blood pressure greater than 200 and a diastolic pressure greater than 110 millimeters of mercury. Why? Well, obviously, with elevation of your blood pressure like that, you're certainly at increased risk of developing uh, an intracranial hemorrhage. Now, a relative contraindication is anybody who's had trauma or major surgery within six weeks but more than two weeks. So if you're in that, remember we said it's contraindicated if you've had trauma or major surgery within two weeks, but if you're between two and six weeks, you're kind of a, a relative contraindication, which makes it kind of difficult because someone of a judgment call. Anyone who has a pre-existing coagulopathy or current use of anticoagulants with an INR greater than two to three is a relative contraindication for the use of thrombolytics. Anybody who has non-compressible vascular punctures, what is that? Well, that's typically subclavian sticks. Um, but if you've got a non-compressible vascular puncture, that is a relative contraindication to use of thrombolytics. Peptic ulcer disease, uh, it's active, is a relative contraindication. Infective endocarditis is a relative contraindication. Pregnancy, this is interesting. Pregnancy is a relative, not an absolute, but a relative contraindication to the use of thrombolytics in the case of myocardial infarction, as well as chronic severe hypertension. Let's talk about some of the thrombolytic agents. Streptokinase. Uh, streptokinase is um, certainly one of the granddaddies that um, uh, the first uh, thrombolytic agents that uh, came out. Um, it's as streptokinase is a given uh, roughly about 1.5 million units, and it's typically given IV over the course of an hour, and this produces a systemic lytic state for about 24 hours. Um, streptokinase produces coronary patency in about 50 to 60 percent of the time. So it's basically a flip of a coin as to whether it's going to uh, uh, reopen the artery. And streptokinase has been shown to decrease mortality 18 percent compared to uh, placebos. Next drug that came out uh, uh, in the 90s uh, was the second generation, and that's tissue plasminogen activator, which we affectionately refer to as TPA. TPA is a genetically uh, produced, or we call it recombinant protein. Uh, it's more fibrin selective than streptokinase, and it produces a higher early coronary patency rate. Now, remember we said for streptokinase that uh, patency rate was between 50 and 60%. The patency rate for uh, TPA, or tissue plasminogen activator, is between 70 and 80%. So, again, um, somewhat better. Tissue plasminogen activator is usually given as an accelerated regimen. Uh, typically, instead of, uh, we said, uh, you give about 15 milligrams or about 0.75 milligrams per kilogram, up to about 50 milligrams IV over the initial 30 minutes. Um, and then um, 0.5 milligrams per kilo, up to 35 milligrams over the next 60 minutes. Now, allergic reactions do occur because TPA, excuse me, allergic reactions do not occur, I'm sorry, uh, do not occur because uh, TPA is non-antigenic, but the rate of intracranial hemorrhage may be higher than uh, uh, with streptokinase, so about 0.7%. So if I were asking uh, a question, I could see a, a real good test question here, is between TPA and um, streptokinase, which drug has a higher 
patency rate after uh, administration. And clearly we said that would be TPA with a 70 to 80% patency rate versus 50 to 60% with streptokinase. Uh, if we asked what drug of those two had a higher uh, rate of allergic reaction, again, it would be streptokinase. But which of the two drugs, streptokinase or TPA, has a higher reported rate of intracranial hemorrhage? We would say that it would be TPA as, uh, roughly at about 0.7%. Now come the drugs, and I'm going to slaughter their uh, pronunciations. Uh, Retoplace um, is another Retoplace, uh, spelled R-E-T-E-P-L-A-S-E. Retoplace is a deletion mutant of TPA. Now, Retoplace has an extended half-life um, than uh, TPA. Typically, it's given as either two, um, basically you give two 10-milligram boluses 30 minutes apart. Now, Retoplace was originally evaluated in angiographic trials, and it demonstrated improved coronary flow at 90 minutes compared to TPA, but subsequent trials showed similar 30-day mortalities between TPA and Retoplace. Um, why enhanced patency with uh, Retoplace did not translate in the lower mortality uh, hasn't really been explained. Another uh, thrombolytic agent is uh, uh, Tenecteplase, spelled T-E-N-E-C-T-E-P-L-A-S-E. Now, Tenecteplase is a genetically engineered uh, TPA mutant. Uh, now, it has amino acid substitutions that result in prolonged half-life and also is resistance to plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, and therefore it has increased fibrin uh, specificity. So the two things that really uh, separate uh, tenecteplase from TPA, longer half-life life, and increased fibrin specificity. Tenecteplase has been shown to produce coronary blood flow rates identical to those seen with accelerated TPA regimens with an equivalent 30-day mortality and uh, similar bleeding rates. Based on those results, single bolus uh, tenecteplase is an acceptable alternative to uh, TPA that can be given as a single bolus. Now, because these newer agents in general have equivalent efficacy and side effect profiles at no current additional cost compared to TPA, and because they're simpler to administer, they've gained significant popularity. So in, in, in some, they're easier to give. They have similar side effect profiles. They have similar patency rates. They don't have to be given as bolus, weight-based bolus infusions. They can be given as, excuse me, weight-based uh, infusions. They can be given as a, a tine bolus, which may make them more attractive in the use of emergency cir circumstances, an emergency department, or a helicopter. Be mindful that we said that we use thrombolytic agents in the treatment of STEMI, ST segment elevated MI, but thrombolytics have shown no benefit uh, to inc uh, to increase risk of adverse events when used for the treatment of unstable angina or non-STEMI. So thrombolytics, as a reminder, are appropriate therapy for the treatment of STEMI, not appropriate for unstable angina or non-STEMI. Now, the next question is, is after we've given somebody um, anti- um, uh, so after we give somebody a fibrolytic agent, do we give them additional anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy? Well, normal blood flow, as we've said, is only established in about 50 to 60% of patients uh, who we've given a potentially thrombolytic four, uh, two. And this is the Timmy grade. Timmy grade three is basically the resolution of normal or the, the return of normal blood flow. Um, furthermore, fibrinolysis activates platelets. So as we're breaking down, the, just the very process of uh, fibrinolysis is going to upregulate platelet activation, which causes further thrombus formation and subsequent reocclusion and reinfarction in a clinically significant number of patients. So you could almost say that the treatment is reestablishing the disease. You have a, an acute thrombus, we administer a fibrinolytic agent, the body responds and says, hey, you're breaking down my, my clot, 
upregulates platelets, and so what can happen is you can end up like you know into another positive feedback cycle. Uh, so you need to do something to kind of break that cycle. So there's been interest in combining full dose platelet glycoprotein 2B3A inhibition with uh, reduced doses of fibrinolytics. Now there have been some early studies that have shown uh, improved rates of what we call TIMI3 blood flow with this approach. Uh, there was the Gusto 5 trial using um, the drug abiximab, and it showed no difference in mortality and increased mortality rates of major bleeding. Now, reinfarction and non-hemorrhagic stroke were decreased in, in the Gusto 5 trial. Now, the administration of full doses of unfractionated heparin is standard after thrombolytic therapy. Low molecular weight heparin may be an appropriate alternative. Now, low molecular weight uh, anoxaparin decreased the combined endpoint of death, MI, and stroke in the ASCENT-3 trial compared with unfractionated heparin, but no benefit was observed in patients older than 75 years of age as well as patients with diabetes. You have been listening to the podcast, uh, Surgery ICU Rounds. This is the uh, first on a talk on myocardial uh, infarction. We're going to uh, uh, complete this talk uh, later uh, with the um, discussion of the role of um, um, coronary interventions with cardiac cath and angioplasty and some of the other things like beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. Uh, so catch the next podcast for that. Also, uh, as a reminder, we have started uh, the other podcast um, um, it is a pharmacology podcast called um, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. Uh, I don't believe it's up on iTunes yet, but we do have it at the website, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional.com, which is the title of the uh, uh, textbook. Uh, and uh, the other uh, website that will point you there is Pre-Hospital Drugs.com. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Thank you for downloading and listening.